Sam Borden, where are you right now? Well, Pablo, I am in an apartment in uh, the Mushareb neighborhood in Doha, Qatar, which is in the southern part of the city. I've been here for a couple of days and I'm here for the next month or so because this is where the World Cup is, man. 12 years in the making and it's finally happening. Yeah, Sam, I remember when we were in Brazil, I grew a disgusting beard. I had laundry issues. Yeah. We were there for a long ass time, like five weeks. This will only be around 29 days, I believe, because of the weird schedule. But how are you feeling as you're at the very beginning of this journey? I'm feeling okay. I mean, one of the things that's weird about this World Cup is that, you know, it's in a place that's the size of Connecticut. So there's no airplanes, you know? Uh, all we're doing <laughs> is driving from one end of the city to the other, right? I mean, it's a lot of vans. That's right. So that's kind of nice to be able to unpack in one place and just stay there, but it's bizarre. I reported on the corruption involved with Qatar winning this World Cup. I reported on the bizarre preparations and the you know human rights issues. Yes, you've been on this for a long time. It just feels weird to be here, finally getting ready to actually watch some games. There's a certain surrealism to the whole thing, but it is the greatest sporting event in the world. You know it. Uh, you've been to it before. It, it, nothing, nothing's like it. There's nothing like it. And uh, it's a privilege to be here and to cover it. And I'm, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. The biggest sporting event in the known universe begins on Sunday, and every World Cup is an extreme environment in its own way. But there has been nothing like what Qatar is attempting to do right now. Because there's the migrant worker crisis, which we just investigated on this show at length two weeks ago. And then there's just the simple fact that the smallest nation to ever host this thing also happens to be the richest country in the world by some measures. And Qatar spent $220 billion, the most ever by far, to bring the world to them. So today, Sam Borden surveys the tournament field and he explains what happens when the world actually shows up. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, November 17th. This is ESPN Daily. So can you just paint the picture for what it looks like, Sam, when you look around, when you survey the cityscape, yeah. the sand? I mean, I'm trying to sort of visualize for all the people who've never been to Qatar, including myself, what it actually resembles. It's really weird, uh, honestly. It's a really weird juxtaposition of some very incongruous familiar settings, if that makes sense. So like, I'll give you an example. If you're at the training base where the U.S. has been doing their practices every day, when you drive up, it feels as though you're driving up to like a regular stadium. They're training at a stadium uh, that is generally used by one of the teams in the Qatari first division. And so you drive up and it looks sort of like a stadium, you know, maybe 15, 20,000 seat stadium. Mm. And if you look in one direction, there is literally nothing. It looks like just desert, like, <laughs> you know, undeveloped sand, maybe a few like deserted parking lots. It, it almost feels like, you know, maybe like an abandoned strip mall in central Florida or something like that. Right. <laughs> and then if you look in the other direction, you'll see like a new development of, condominiums. 
and you might feel like you're sort of in, I don't know, like a, a, a recently renovated area outside Houston or something like that. You know, very little, sort of low rise architecture, but nice, but clearly, you know, the only new thing in the area. Mm. And then if you look kind of behind you, you're looking back towards the city and you can see the skyscrapers and the Pearl, which is like this district that has a bunch of tall buildings and, you know, sort of abuts the bay. And so literally in each of the different directions, you're seeing something that looks kind of familiar, but also really not at all connected to the thing in the other direction. And that just sort of adds to this really incongruous feeling of like, where am I right now? Am I am I in Houston? Am I in yeah. Florida? Am I in the Middle East? Where, where am I exactly? I remember, Sam, we were in Brazil together yeah. for that World Cup, what feels like somewhere between eight and a million years ago. And I <laughs> exactly. recall, I recall around Brazil, obviously like rowdy fan bases had traveled in from all of the countries that were competing. I remember England having a very strong presence. That's kind of the typical scene at a World Cup. What's it like where you are now? Have you seen anything like that? It is different. There's no doubt. I mean, I was at the World Cup in Brazil. I was at the World Cup in Russia. I've been at a couple of women's World Cups. And like, you know, in the sort of traditional soccer places, there is that scene. There is that, you know, like packs of people roaming around, singing, screaming. Now, obviously, we're still a few days away from the tournament actually beginning, but it, it isn't like that. It hasn't been like that yet. It is different. And I know that there have been some reports about, okay, are, are there fake fans? Is Qatar hiring fans to come in and cheer? And, right. you know, look, I certainly, you know, you wouldn't put anything past the organizing committee. They haven't, uh, you know, they haven't done a ton to earn trust. But I, I would also be a little bit careful about that, this is a different part of the world. And the way that football fans here celebrate their teams and their players is different. You know, there's a lot of expats here. There are a lot of immigrants from South Asian countries that do follow European soccer, but maybe cheer or support their teams in a different way. And so I'm always a little bit careful about saying, oh yeah, that's that's a fake fan or that's a paid for fan. That may well be the case, but there also is a very good chance that it's just a different kind of fan than we're used to seeing at a European or South American World Cup. So as we try to figure out, okay, like what is a Potemkin village here? Like what are the <laughs> what are the aspects of of the theater that is sort of just like a stand-up covering up the stuff behind? I'm curious about where these fans are supposed to stay. I've seen reports, Sam, of like these fan villages that seem like tents that seem pretty stripped down, pretty bare, that all indicates that maybe Qatar is not entirely ready to host the competition beginning in four days. What's your sense of, of all of that? Yeah, it's it's interesting, Pablo. For sure, there is that feel. I kind of felt the same way at the Sochi Olympics in Russia. It was like the whole thing was a movie set. And if you just like pushed on it, it was going to fall over, you know, uh, that kind of a feel. <laughs> and it's not quite that intense in terms of an artificial feel here. I mean, this whole area, you know, Doha, Dubai, there is that artificial feel. It does feel as though they just built a city like Las Vegas in the middle of the desert. And, and that's real. I mean, you know, the buildings are real, but it, it clearly is a, in a lot of ways, a made up place. And so there is that feel in Doha. There is a skyline with skyscrapers that 
feels very much out of place. And you're right. You know, there are a lot of makeshift fan accommodations. You know, you mentioned tents. There's sort of, you know, uh, a glamping scene. Mm. There are uh, villages of almost like storage containers that have been turned into like makeshift, you know, bungalows, I guess, you know, where fans are staying. Yeah. There are boats, uh, you know, fans are staying on, you know, sort of elaborate cruise ships that are docked in the bay. So it is a little bit weird. And then even beyond that, there are a lot of fans that are going to be flying in from Dubai or other cities in the region just on the day that they're attending a game and then flying right back out. So it is a little bit different, you know, than what we saw in Rio, where it felt like the whole world just sort of found a hotel wherever they could and, you know, partied for a month. It's not quite that vibe. There just isn't that much space. Uh, and so I think the whole scene will feel a little more transient than, you know, you might otherwise expect. Yeah, combined with the jet lag, I imagine all of this is especially disorienting. And I guess my next curiosity is just like, how free are you to explore? How much can you see? What have you seen in your just uh, early travels there? Yeah, I mean, Pablo, security is intense. There's no question. You know, this is a place where, the organizers, the government, the Supreme Committee, which is what the organizing committee calls itself, you know, which is pretty interesting in and of itself. Yes. They are really concerned about what the outside world thinks of them, the way they're organizing the tournament. And so there are certain areas where you're very free to come and take pictures and highlight the wonderful things that they've done to make the World Cup happen. But then there are plenty of areas where you take out your phone. Uh, I was, um, we were doing a live shot for Sports Center uh, down near the an area called the Corniche, which is like on the bay essentially. And across from where we were shooting was what looked to be like a, a royal residence, like an area where maybe like the prince lived. Mm. And it had a giant lawn in front of it. And while we're doing our Sports Center hit, I look up and I see a dozen camels, you know, with riders sort of doing a procession across the lawn in front of the this residence. And I, I, we finish our hit and I go to sort of take a, a picture of it because it looks amazing. And I'm kind of like, wow, there's camels here. Of course. Yeah. So I'm, I take my phone out and I'm taking a video of it and I get, you know, whatever, 15 seconds of it. And then somebody comes up to me, a security guard comes up to me and says, you can't video this. And I'm like, Okay. So I, you know, I put my phone away and that, that was kind of the end of it, but it was a, a reminder that somebody is always watching. There are cameras everywhere. There are security officers everywhere. There is a real attention to what the outside world is experiencing while they're here in Qatar. And I think there is no doubt that that's going to be a recurring theme as these next four weeks unfold. This is a country that's not used to having the entire world staring at it, staring at the way it operates, staring and judging, you know, the policies and laws and rules that it has in place. It's not used to that. And that's what it's going to get for the next four weeks. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the experiment. This is part of the test that Qatar is trying to pass. This is the smallest country that has ever hosted a World Cup, putting on the richest World Cup in history. And we are seeing videos, Sam. I mean, these tensions between all of the journalists they've invited. Yep. The tensions between those journalists wanting to see stuff and the local authorities, the Supreme Committee you alluded to. I mean, just today we saw a video of a Danish news reporter being stopped during a live broadcast by those authorities in just sort of like a, a public area tourist destination, which led to apologies by those tournament organizers. 
Jamen, vi kan jo vise, hvordan forholdene er lige her, hvis vi drejer kameraet. Uh, we are live on Danish Television, og uh, der kan I se, nu bliver, vi, nu bliver vi stoppet med at filme, og det er forholdene her. Uh, mister, you invited the whole world to the... You, you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. This is the uh, accreditation. Okay. We can film anywhere we want. Okay. There are only, of course... No, 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 we don't need permit. But you can break the camera. You want to break the camera? Okay, you break the camera. Okay. So you're threatening us by, 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 by smashing the camera. And I'm just wondering how clear the rules are when it comes to what you can and can't do. I would say that they're pretty unclear. Um, I think that it's one of those things, right, Pablo, where like if you were to ask somebody from the Supreme Committee, they would probably say, yeah, the rules are you can do things that make us look good and you can't do things that make us look bad, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> right. that's basically when you boil it down, that's pretty much, I think, where they and many, you know, many organizing committees would come down. And so it is going to take some navigation by everybody involved. And I think that you're going to see circumstances like what happened with that Danish journalist, particularly if, as we expect, there are some protests. There are, you know, some uprisings from people here who are unhappy about the laws related to the LGBT community or, you know, the drinking regulations or the rules regarding where you can go and where you can't go and what you can show and what you can't show. I think that that tension is going to exist as long as this tournament is going on. And I think we all knew that it was going to happen. It's just a matter of how bad does it get when it gets bad. Yeah, the idea of wanting, thirsting, paying for all of this attention, but not wanting the criticism or the skepticism, the cynicism even, it raises the question of of the alcohol rules that you just alluded to, right? I mean, something that I've been trying to monitor from afar here is what's going on with these Budweiser beer tents as the royal family in Qatar is concerned. Can you explain what that story is about? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's fascinating. And it's a, you know, you're right. It's a really good example of the tension, right? Because it's not even just the tension between the organizing committee and the Western world. Even within Qatar, there is tension over just how much do we want to give in terms of our standards and our policies and what we believe is correct to open ourselves up to an event like this. So you were talking about the Budweiser, you know, sort of drinking tents. And it's a question that's lingered over this tournament ever since Qatar was awarded the hosting rights. There's a lot of drinking that happens at the World Cup, right? I mean, there are a lot of fans. It is it is endemic. It is yeah. critical. It is key to why you you would want to pay for a major sponsorship, totally. as Budweiser counts as. No, totally. And, and Budweiser has been a longtime sponsor of FIFA and a big sponsor of the World Cup. And so this was a big deal. And Qatar, like you might imagine, in a very conservative Muslim country, alcohol is really tightly controlled here. Normally, the only places that you can drink or that you can get alcoholic beverages here are in hotels. You know, there aren't bars. There's not like you can go buy beer in the grocery store. That's just not how it works here. And so the idea that you would be able to have like a beer garden, which is what they had in all over Russia or all over Brazil, you know, near the stadiums, it just wasn't going to happen here. And so originally there was a, a, a big back and forth between the organizers, the organizing committee, Budweiser, the sponsors, there was an agreement reached. Finally, they're going to be able to sell beer, not inside the stadium, but inside the perimeter of where the fans go to get into the stadium. And they'll be able to buy beer outside before they go in. That was the agreement. Mm. Then, as you said earlier, Pablo, 
the royal family saw where those beer tents were going to be and felt that they were too visible. And so at the last minute, a decree came down from on high. Those tents need to be moved. And they were relocated with literally days before the first game is played. They were relocated to a you know less obvious place within the stadiums. And I think it's a great example of that tension, right? Like there is a segment within Qatar, within the royal family, that's like, we're not going to compromise everything. And having Bud Light for sale, you know, 30 steps from the front door of our stadium, that's a little too much. And so, hey, when, you know, the decree comes down, the change is made. And that's what happened. Yeah, these compromises that are being negotiated in real time in front of you as you watch buildings and tents get erected and things get moved around with just hours seemingly ticking down on the clock here, you you raise this question, Stan, maybe the most uncomfortable question, essentially, that Qatar has to figure out here, which is how do we deal with these protests? And you mentioned some of Qatar's laws. You alluded to the fact that same-sex marriages are illegal there. And in fact, same-sex sexual activity in general is illegal there. And now you invite all of these countries, right, where that is not the law of their land. And so what are you seeing on the demonstration front? You know, it's really interesting, Pablo. I think I, this is maybe a little bit of a long-winded answer, so f- bear with me. But yeah. the other day, I was I was walking through the souk, which is like the you know like the market, the traditional market uh, here in Doha. And I'm walking along. I'm you know sort of looking at the shops, the spice shops, the vegetables, the cafes, and all of a sudden, I look up and I see two men on horses just you know, riding through the market. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is cool. Like it's, it feels very authentic. It's one of the few places in Doha where you feel like, hey, this is maybe a little piece of like, you know, what it's like here regularly for locals. All right, there's two guys on horses. And I'm like, that's cool. And then they, they walk past me and I realized that behind them is a worker in a yellow, like sort of hazmat suit and he's carrying a shovel. And every time the horses go to the bathroom, he runs up and cleans up what the horses have left behind and like just proceeds along behind them. And so I was thinking to myself, like, you know, this is a really interesting metaphor for what Qatar is trying to do, right? Like they want to show themselves. They want to say, yes, look at us. This is, this. we're not as bad as you think. The authenticity of our people is real and genuine, but then they also don't want to get dirty. Mm. And I kind of feel like it's a similar thing. You know, they've said, no, 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 it's okay. If you're, if you're a uh, same-sex couple, you're welcome here. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But then you also have these moments where it's very clear that it might not be quite that simple. I think there is real fear from people in the LGBTQ community. What is going to happen? There are legitimate doubts about, are there going to be arrests? Are there going to be police enforcement of, if I'm in a same-sex relationship and I'm holding hands walking down the street? Mm. They've said that there isn't, but I think it's fair to be concerned about just how true those words are going to ring when it comes down to actually pulling that off. And so, you know... I think that we're going to see protests. I think we're going to see awkward situations. And I don't think that the Qatari organizing committee is going to be able to clean it all up quite as easily as they did the horse droppings. Well, especially when 
the players, the teams, the people on the field are also engaging in some of these demonstrations, right? I mean, totally. explain yeah. what these teams are venturing to do in support of the LGBTQ community as all of this is, is happening. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, on top of the organizing committee and the Qatari government, you also have FIFA sending out a letter to every team involved in the World Cup saying, Hey, we'd really like everybody to just focus on soccer. You know, hey, just just stick to sports, right? It was it was <laughs> their equivalent of shut up and dribble, you know? Like that's really what it felt like. Yep. And a lot of the teams are saying no. I mean, the US has decided to in the areas that they control, right? Like their team hotel, their team training site, not their uniforms which FIFA has uh, you know, control over um for example, but in the areas that they control they've displayed their U.S. soccer crest with a rainbow flag enmeshed in it. They have talked about, speaking out about, you know, this Be the Change initiative that they, the players, created in the wake of the Ferguson situation several years ago, and they've used that platform to try to speak up about human rights issues. You had uh, fans across Germany, fans of one of the Bundesliga teams, Freiburg, they, they held up a banner at the last game saying, Boycott Qatar. Yeah. Harry Kane. Harry Kane's the captain of England. He's going to wear a one love armband, captain's armband during games uh, as part of a campaign that was started by the Netherlands to support the LGBTQ community. So, you know, you're seated everywhere. There have been some players uh, who just want to stick to soccer. Uh, France's goalkeeper, Hugo Lloris, he said that he's not going to be involved in protesting. But I, I've seen reactions from teams almost everywhere, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Wales, Switzerland, these players recognize that this is a weird place to be playing a World Cup, and it's a place where a lot of the rights and freedoms that they enjoy in their own countries are not in place. I give the players credit for saying, look, yes, this is a World Cup. We want to play, but we're also not immune to the idea that this is unusual and there are things here that aren't right, and we want to speak up about it. Yeah, you'd mentioned the U.S. men's national team and all of this just a minute ago. And after the break, I want to pivot to their prospects on the field. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So, Sam, I have many questions for you about the U.S. team and the men, how they are finally here, qualified for a World Cup after missing the entire tournament in 2018 in Russia. But there was this video, this story that's emerged as it relates to the migrant workers in Qatar that just transpired over the last day or so. Explain what exactly went on. Yeah, it's really interesting, Pablo. You know, uh, obviously, like we talked about before the break there, you know, the U.S. team wants to be involved in having their voice heard. They want to talk about some of these human rights related issues that are relevant here in Qatar. And so 
As you mentioned, the, the, the plight of the migrant workers here has been well covered. Yes, we covered this on our show two weeks ago, November 4th, with Jeremy Shep, who had been covering that story for years. Yeah, totally. And, and Jeremy did a tremendous job uh, on that piece, and it, it deserves all the attention it gets. And I think that the U.S. players were aware of, hey, look, there's a group of people that have been working to essentially create the infrastructure for this World Cup that have been treated terribly. And we don't want to be shy away from that. And so last night, in sort of in combination with the Supreme Committee, who was obviously excited about the opportunity to highlight workers who worked on the stadiums being uh, together with players who were playing in the World Cup, the U.S. hosted a group of workers that played like in small-sided games, you know, five-on-five on on the training field where the U.S. has been practicing. (laughs) It was one of those things where it was a volunteer situation. I mean, I was told by U.S. Soccer that there was no mandate for the players to go. But I think about, you know, eight to eight to 12 players showed up. Christian Pulisic was there. Weston McKenney was there. Big name players that were there. Greg Berhalter was there. And they coached these migrant workers and they had a fun penalty shootout. And afterwards, I think both the workers and the players felt as though at least there was some connection made between these guys who are now going to get to participate in this bizarre World Cup and some segment of the population that really toiled over the last decade plus in making it possible. Yeah, I mean, Sam, you just mentioned in terms of the possibility of this World Cup now on the actual soccer side of things, some names that I do want to understand better. Greg Berhalter, of course, the head coach, Christian Pulisic, of course, the star player, maybe the biggest name on this team. But if you were to give us sort of the executive briefing here to catch us <laughs> up, if we've been maybe hibernating on this team, where are you starting? No, that's that's a good question because I know that a lot of American fans, you know, the World Cup might be the, the, the only thing that they watch, you know, every couple of years, every four years. Yes. So let me give you the quick rundown, right? The U.S. team missed the World Cup in 2018. That doesn't happen very often. It was a big deal. And there was a a real sort of turning of the page into the next chapter for the U.S. team. They brought in Greg Berhalter. He was a player on the national team, played in a World Cup, was a respected club coach after he retired, coached in MLS, and had success. And so he came in, took over the team, and he has sort of led this youth revolution that has happened in the U.S. team, right? Like Berhalter has turned over almost the entire roster. Of the 26 players that are here in Qatar, only one, DeAndre Yedlin, has any World Cup experience. He was a substitute on the 2014 in Brazil. Mm. Everybody else has never played in a World Cup before, right? None of them were around in 2014. Most of them weren't even around in the failed qualification of 2018. They've all come through in the last few years. And so that's why you see guys like Christian Pulisic, you see guys like Gio Reyna, you see guys like Yunus Musa. All of these guys are in their 20s. Musa is a teenager still. Gio Reyna, uh, I think, just turned 20. These are young players. It's a young core. And so they are very inexperienced, but they are also very, very ambitious. And they believe that their success in this World Cup will be a predictor 
of how they're going to do in 2026 when the World Cup is back in North America. So I think this World Cup is step one. It's like the opening number. And 2026, when these guys are in the primes of their career and the World Cup is in North America, that's almost like the main show. Well, listen, what they've been doing, what these players have been doing abroad, right? Like you mentioned the success question. They've had success with big European club teams, right? Pulisic yeah. plays for Chelsea, Weston McKinney, Juventus, Tyler Adams, Brandon Aronson, they play for Leeds United. So the optimism around what they can do this tournament, where does that rank? Because the context here is that the United States is in Group B. They're going to square off against Wales on November 21st. Then they get England on November 25th, uh, Black Friday. Then they get Iran. Gosh, that's another story in its own right. Um, Iran's role and place in this World Cup amid its own set of protests back home. They get Iran on November 29th. How competitive is this team going to be in this group? You know, it's it's one of those things where I feel like every time that I've, you know, been on a radio show or even just talked to like a fan, you know, on the street and they ask me for predictions, you can really make the case for almost anything, you know? <laughs> like this group is very deep. It's not a group where there is a, you know, surefire, oh, this is the team that's going to win the group. This is the team that's going to finish last. Like, Iran is a very good team. They did very well in Asian qualifying. They're clearly not as well known as England or even the United States, but they're legit. There is every chance that they could win a game against, certainly against Wales, certainly against the United States, and maybe even against England. And so, I guess when you say, where, what could the U.S. do? I think it's very possible they could finish in any of the four spots in the group. If I were betting, I think they'll probably finish second. I think that England will win the group. The U.S. will finish second. And I think mm. the U.S. will end up making it to a round of 16 game against a, a pretty decent team. And then it's a toss-up, right? I mean, it's one game. You know, you win, you go on. You lose, you go home. And so... To me, like, I think the best case scenario for the U.S. is probably quarterfinals. If you were getting really ambitious, maybe a semifinal. I think that would be incredible. But I also think it's very possible that they, you know, lose two games, get a tie and go home when the group stage is done. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing essentially a soft launch. If there is a semifinal this year, that is far in excess of what their actual timeline internally seems to want to be. Totally. And, and you know, I, I, this is a weird World Cup. It's in the middle of the season. It's in November. It's in extreme weather conditions. The games are going to be played very late at night Many in many instances. It's a shorter tournament than normal. There wasn't the run-up to it where the teams can beat together. And so, you know how, like, sometimes... You know, you'll you'll get a, a a football game where there's like a you know a hurricane or, or or you know like some kind of bizarre weather event and and people will say like this is a day where an upset could happen. You know, it's an equalizer. Yes, this whole tournament is an equalizer. There has never been a World Cup champion from outside of South America or Europe in the history of the World Cup. And I'm not saying that that's definitely mm. going to change this year. But if ever there was going to be a champion from Africa or from Asia or from North America, you know, this is the tournament. This is where the weird stuff could happen. Yeah, would it be strange if the U.S. made a quarterfinal or even beyond? A hundred percent. It would be a spectacular surprise. But I think this is the kind of tournament where a spectacular surprise could happen.
coming up. The best national teams on the planet who are all hoping things go exactly as planned. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Sam, you mentioned that anything is possible uh, for the United States men's national team. But who actually expects to win this thing? Who are the favorites as the hierarchy stands now? Yeah, Pablo, they're they're what you'd expect. I mean, it's it's the usual cast of characters. Brazil, which has won the men's World Cup more than any other nation. They're the favorites. Uh, they're definitely the top dog. If they win, it would be their sixth title, which is ridiculous. If you look at their roster, I mean, it's like, it's incredible. Obviously, it runs down from Neymar. He's the, you know, the sort of most famous name on there. But yeah. they're very, very deep. Then you've got France. France won the tournament in 2018. They're probably the second choice to repeat. But it's unusual to be able to repeat as World Cup champions. They have not looked great in some of their tune-ups. They've had a bunch of injuries. But they still have Kylian Mbappé, who, for my money, is the best player in the world. And... Mm is the kind of player that can just change a game on a dime. So where whatever situation they might find themselves in, he's the kind of guy that could turn it around for them if they need it. Then to me, you get sort of below those two, there's a little bit of a drop-off, but I think the one that jumps out from sort of that next cut for me is Argentina. And that's mostly because it's a great story, right? I mean, everybody knows Leo Messi, uh, he's Argentina star. He's the biggest star in the world, in my opinion. Yes. And this is his last World Cup. I mean, he's getting to the end of his career. This is going to be his last shot at winning a World Cup. You know, like you said, Pablo, you and I were in Brazil. He yes. almost won. When they he made the final. Won. Yes, when they yeah. made the final against Germany and, and lost. And it would have been a great story if he could have won in Brazil, which is Argentina's biggest rival. But now this is it. You know, this is his sort of last turn on stage. And I... I think any soccer fan that admires Messi, that loves what Messi has brought to the game, has to be rooting for Argentina to make a run here. And and they could. You know, they are unbeaten in, I think it's 34 games going back to 2019. 
They beat Italy in an exhibition game between the, the continental champions of Europe and South America. They're good. They definitely uh, have a legitimate chance. I think there will be some question about where they finish in the draw and how they end up sort of the path in the knockout rounds. But there is every possibility that we will get Messi, the biggest star of his generation, uh, playing for the only World Cup trophy he'll ever get in his last shot. And I think that would be an amazing possibility. Well, when you mentioned this whole conversation around who is the best player in the world, for so long it was Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo in some order. And now Ronaldo, who is playing for Portugal, he's here. And everything about his story, his life now, Sam, seems to be both... Uh, Funny in ways that it didn't used to be and awkward and, yeah, frankly, a little cringeworthy. What exactly is happening with Portugal? Yeah, there, there's no doubt, Pablo. I mean, like I said, you know, if, if, if Messi is the sentimental favorite for a lot of folks here, Ronaldo comes into this World Cup very much as a villain. And it's entirely of his own making. He did an interview a couple of weeks ago with Piers Morgan where he essentially ripped apart his club team, Manchester United. They're trying to force you out, yes. Not only the coach, but the other two or three guys there around the club. At uh, the senior executive level. Yes, that I felt betrayed. And I felt that some people that don't want me here, not only this year, but last year too. He ripped his coach. He ripped the facilities at Man United, you know, the, the gym set up there, like literally everything. And it's pretty clear that he's trying to force his way out of the team. And, and that's fine. That's his prerogative. But what he's done is put the spotlight on himself ahead of what is a hugely important tournament for Portugal. And so we've seen already that that has led to some really awkward situations. He showed up in the locker room for training with Portugal and went to greet one of his teammates, Bruno Fernandes, who literally turned away from him. Why? Well, <laughs> Bruno Fernandes is also his teammate at Manchester United. Yeah. And so all of the negativity that Ronaldo had just put out there about Man United, well, Bruno Fernandes didn't want to hear it. I mean, that's his club. That's his coach. And so he didn't want to interact with Ronaldo. And then there is this sort of negative vibe around Ronaldo that's even bigger than just with his teammates at Man United. He goes out on the training field and there's this super awkward interaction with Jacques Cancelo. He, Ronaldo goes over, wants to, you know, hug Jacques Cancelo, wants, yeah. to, wants to, you know, greet him, talk to him. And his teammate wants nothing to do with him. It, so, it's like it's like being turned down at a bar in the most embarrassing way. Yeah, so awkward, right? Like it's just, and this is your star. This is your captain. This is your your guy who's going to carry you, uh, you know, as far as this team's going to go. And so I think if you're a fan of Portugal, it's the exact opposite of what you want to see from your team heading into what are going to be perhaps the last World Cup games that Ronaldo ever plays. And then, Sam Borden, we got to get you on the record here. Who are you picking? Who's winning this? Yeah, man, it's it's so tough. I, I think I'm going to go with my heart. Uh, I have always loved Messi, um, you know, in the whole Ronaldo-Messi debate. I've always been a Messi guy, and it killed me that he wasn't able to pull it off in Brazil. I thought that would have been such a great yeah. story. In front of Rihanna. I remember sitting totally. like as close as I'll ever be to Rihanna as we were watching that. No, totally. And and I mean, uh, you know, like all of the Argentine fans had come up to Rio for the final. It would have been a great story and it just didn't happen. And so I think, 
you know, when I'm, if you ask me my prediction, I guess I'll predict Argentina to do it, but I think that's as much uh, a hope for a, a wonderful send-off story for this superstar athlete that we've been privileged to watch. Soccer fans have been privileged to watch for the last 20 years as much as anything else. In the end, I think Messi gets it done and it'll be the fairy tale ending to what has been an incredibly magical career for him. Sam Borden, we are very glad you're over there living a wildly surreal existence and we'll talk to you again. Thanks very much, Pablo. Great to talk to you. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily and I'll talk to you tomorrow.